This is Lex Kibernetica, the cyber law podcast by the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Lex Kibernetica. My name is Yuval Shani. I'm a law professor here at the faculty at Hebrew University, and I'm also the uh, director of the cyber law program, uh, which is part of the Cybersecurity Research Center. One of the problems in cybersecurity is attributing the cyber attacks to their source. Right. So some of our work here is focused on identifying what are the rules of the game, namely under what conditions are states and other actors liable for uh, have responsibility for um, uh, orchestrating or executing cyber attacks. But the, the next question, which in a way is the reason why the first question is not so interesting as it is, is how do we go about actually attributing those cyber attacks? Because it's one thing to decide what are the rules of the game, what is it that states should do or should not do. But then there is the question of how do we know what states are actually doing or not doing. And of course, in cyberspace, this is a critical question because of the unique features of cyberspace that allow deniability and anonymity which the attackers are using exactly and in fact it is the very configuration of cyberspace and of actors in cyberspace which invites those who actually are interested in orchestrating and executing cyber attacks to work not directly through their official agencies but rather through uh, a variety of intermediaries which could be criminal groups they could be private actors and they could be undercover state agents and then the question is, over and beyond the question of responsibility, namely, is the state responsible for those attacks? And the answer, of course, it is. How do you actually go about proving that the state agency was behind these attacks? And this is an extremely complicated question, which raises both legal issues as to what are the standards according to which one is to go about attributing and what is the level of evidence that needs to be uh, assigned. But also there are practical issues such as who is going to do these investigations and who is going to eventually assign responsibility on the basis of these uh, investigations. And this is an area where currently we have a form of a lacuna, namely a void. There are no international mechanisms that are up to task. We do not have an international court of cyber attribution or an international commission of investigation for cybersecurity. And uh, one of the projects that we are dealing here in collaboration with the Exeter Law School in the UK and also uh, the Dutch Ministry of Defense is to try to undertake a feasibility study that would look into what sort of mechanisms could be conceivably introduced in the field drawing some comparative lessons from other areas in which attribution is very important, also very complicated, such as, for instance, in the area of proliferations of weapons of mass destruction, where tracing a chemical use of chemical weapons to a specific source in a specific country also has a scientific forensic dimension and a legal political dimension which needs to be undertaken. So what we are doing is actually trying to map which mechanisms work in other fields of international relations and try to ascertain whether we can build on that basis a model that would work also in cyberspace. And when you say we, what countries are involved in this project. Our center is funded to some extent by the Israeli National Security Directorate, although we are, of course, fully independent from the cybersecurity. It's an interesting point because 
Israel is being blamed but is not taking responsibility for, for example, the Stuxnet attack on Iran. Yes, I'm not sure that Israel would be one of the countries that would be most interested in using such a mechanism. I mean, it's obviously those states who are most on the receiving end and that perhaps do not have the technological capacity to undertake investigations and also would probably appreciate the diplomatic dividends of having an international body that could actually point the finger instead of them. So Holland is actually the one country that has so far expressed interest in taking a lead in this. I should say that we are not, of course, operating in a vacuum. There are other bodies who are looking into these very same issues. And Microsoft, actually, as part of its Digital Geneva Convention, has tried to push for a variety of initiatives, including in the issue of accountability or attribution, where they envision the creation of loose consortia of private companies and non-governmental organizations that would be able to perform these sort of services. Because a lot of the attacks are done on infrastructure and on software and services that are uh, run by those companies. They are on the uh, receiving end. Sure, sure. I think this is one area in which there is a confluence of interest between private companies and governments. And I think we are all in this respect where many, many countries and many companies are in the same boat. Uh, the question is whether, and this is part of our feasibility study, is whether the more suitable model for such an attribution agency is a private model or a public model. I should say that we already have a lot of private actors that are involved in this field and they do perform our security, cybersecurity companies that do have the forensic capacity to engage in investigations. And we know that some of the most um, conspicuous attacks that have been undertaken in recent years, such as the attacks on Sony and the WannaCry, etc., uh, there have been private companies that have uh, conducted research and came out with specific conclusions as to who was behind it. The problem with these private companies is because they are private companies and because they do this for pay, there are some questions that are often raised as to whether they are generating findings that would be sufficiently independent and impartial of the client that has actually ordered this service. So one of the reasons we think we should perhaps introduce also an additional tool to this toolbox, namely an international independent uh, mechanism, is that it may have some exceptional degree of credibility that could, in a way, raise the stakes for those who are contemplating to conduct uh, cyber attacks. Because if they know that there would be an international determination of liability in this field, which would have negative diplomatic consequences for them, for instance, this could make them think twice. Uh, but of course, I mean, this is a, a cat and mouse kind of uh, competition because uh, the mice keep getting faster and faster and more sophisticated. And we will see there whether- There are so many mice. And there are so many mice in this area, yes. Is a body like that the UN or, uh, or something of that magnitude? So part of the feasibility study is what should a body like this look like in terms of how it should operate? I mean, it should have a scientific capacity, it should have a legal capacity, it should have an investigative capacity. So, so there are uh, logistical questions of how you actually construct it. And then there are organizational questions as to who should be behind this. Uh, so Microsoft, as I, as I mentioned, proposed that this would be an independent consortia of companies. But it could be uh, conceivable also to create it within under the auspices of an existing uh, international mechanism. So 
It could be the UN, though the UN, of course, is a body which uh, its own independence and impartiality is often questioned. So there could be some doubt as to whether this is the way to go forward, but it could be under NATO, it could be under the OSCE, and it could be under an ad hoc arrangement that has been created for the purposes of creating such a mechanism. We do have, for instance, uh, just to give a, an example, an international criminal court that is comprised of 123 countries that have accepted that, that specific institution as a possible way to go forward with international crimes. And this model could also apply uh, with, of course, many changes to this field of uh, investigating uh, cybersecurity breaches. Is it typical of state actors to hide their attacks or is it something that uh, they're doing because it's possible it's easier in the cybersphere? No, I think what's happening here that a lot of what we are seeing in this field of cyber attacks is really an extension of what we saw before in the field of espionage. So we do have a lot of the actors who are involved, like the GRU, the, the Russian a, a spy agency, and some of the Chinese actors in this field. These are extensions of military intelligence and secret service uh, operations. And I think uh, working uh, secretly in a clandestine manner is their modus operandi. Uh, but of course, also here, I mean, there are huge opportunities to further uh, engage in such clandestine methods of operation, given the nature of the web, the ability to get away rather easily with these sort of incursions. So the gap, the opening, the ability to operate anonymously, deniability and working through proxies is of course rendering this as a particularly attractive arena for working in the dark side, so to speak. But don't countries want other countries to know what powers they have? Like we have An atom bomb, we have uh, stealth planes, we have the ability to shut down your nuclear reactor. Don't they want to create deterrence by showing off their uh, cyber uh, abilities and cyber weapons? Well, this is a theory that does exist, and it is we do see it that in some areas countries are uh, conducting uh, nuclear tests or ballistic tests in order to uh, showcase their capacity. So far, we haven't seen much of that happening in this realm. And, and, and I think that here, because it's a cat and mouse kind of game, once you declare that you have a certain capacity, you immediately spare your adversaries to develop defensive capacities that would neutralize that capacity and to develop their own aggressive capacities that would actually build on your own capacities. So we have seen, for instance, That some of the uh, software that has been uh, used in in monocry has been actually stolen from the NSA so actually here they not only they did not announce it they actually developed this capacity in stealth but nonetheless it was hacked stolen and then put into use uh, by the the bad guy so to speak so uh, I think that in this uh, so far we have seen uh, one of the features that we have seen is Uh, in cyberspace that states are very uncomfortable about making any statement in the open as to what is it that they can do, what is it that they want to do, and even what is it that they actually did. So even when states have a legal uh, right to uh, retaliate against states that have attacked them, so far we have not seen states actually declaring out in the open that they have conducted retaliatory cyber attacks. 
So deterrence so far is not as central and doesn't work as neatly and fast as it works in other fields of international relations. Do you expect this to change with time and especially with uh, international bodies uh, responsible for finding uh, who's accountable? So one of the implications of having international attribution agencies and other mechanisms for um, exposing liability would be that a lot of the activity that is currently uh, taking place below the surface would have to emerge over the surface and that states would have to become more transparent uh, in, uh, about what is that they are doing in this field. And once the situation is more transparent and one could actually publicly assign responsibility and publicly in a way uh, impose costs on those who break the rules of the game, then the ordinary incentives that one sees in international relations in the kinetic world would kick in also to some extent in the cybernetic world. And we would start seeing again deterrence and cost-benefit analysis and diplomatic maneuvering around uh, cyber activity because currently one of the predicaments is that states are able to do very bad things and get away with it, scot-free. From your research so far, what have you established are the best uh, practices and best organizations for accountability? Well, we are seeing uh, that in terms of what's out there, we are seeing, as I said, that in the field of uh, non-conventional weapons, we do have some interesting examples. For instance, there is a, a test ban treaty that prohibits the conduct of nuclear tests. And then there you have in place a mechanism which we identify as, as a possible uh, good model for us to uh, move forward in attributing cyber attacks in terms of how this is structured, what sort of uh, our role states have in the governance of this mechanism. The only problem that it doesn't actually work in the real world, it's a paper mechanism. So uh, in a way, we have not found so far the silver bullet, namely the mechanism that actually works and is actually structured in ways which are effective independence and impartial. But uh, we think that we could be able uh, to extricate from uh, existing models some features that could be interesting. And of course, there's already, as I said, some proposals on the table. The RAND Corporation has compiled a report on behalf of Microsoft, which does propose some elements that such a mechanism would feature. And anyway, what we since this is a feasibility study, what we actually aim to do is to undertake a series of workshops with state agents, with non-state actors with technology companies and tries to map out the contours of what is plausible, what could be palatable to states in this field. And this is the project that we've already had one workshop here in Jerusalem last month, but we are still, uh, most of the work is still ahead of us. So it will be a bit premature for me to commit to any specific model at this time. Do you think it's possible that a new model will emerge, something that doesn't exist today. It's a mechanism that is uh, totally new. Well, I think the feature here that is, is, is very different from what we are seeing in other areas of international law and relations is the involvement of private companies. So this is clearly a feature which needs to be somewhat introduced. And, and it is interesting that the technology companies such as Microsoft have been taking a, a lead, an intellectual and also political and diplomatic lead in trying to advance this. So this is something that would need to be uh, introduced into equations, certainly. And from the uh, macro, in a sense, of or we go into the micro, maybe not as micro, hmm. but human enhancement of soldiers. 
Right. So one of the challenges that this field presents that we need not only to fight, so to speak, and regulate the previous wars, but also to try to think of what future wars that would involve cyber capacities would entail. So one area in which we have done research is what are the very rules of the game that apply vis-a-vis cyber attacks, that is computer uh, on computer uh, warfare and, and its knock-on effects. But then uh, what we are seeing, still not on the battlefield, but uh, there, is, uh, there is certainly a lot of uh, discussion going in that direction. And there are some specific technology development projects that we are monitoring that have to do with the interplay between technology and humans and the way in which uh, human decision making in the battlefield is going to be uh, increasingly enmeshed. Uh, with technology. So we are uh, seeing uh, there has been a lot of discussion in recent years about killer robots and the idea that automated systems of killing would actually be put into use in the battlefield. This so far has not uh, has not happened at the speed and scale envisioned. But there is another area which is in a way more difficult uh, to regulate because it's much more nuanced, and that is the interplay between uh, human decision making and AI, artificial intelligence. So already we are talking about systems of decision making where a lot of the uh, data gathering, data processing, and often also uh, outcomes of, of that analysis are being performed by computer systems. And then human beings are uh, invited or, uh, or offered uh, the recourse uh, on that basis. So we see that already in the fields of uh, target selection, we will, and we will see this more in trying to identify in the battlefield who is the combatant and who is a, an uninvolved civilian. So we already have uh, data flowing in from cameras that monitor activity over time and can identify pattern, what are called patterns of life, the way in which uh, different individuals conduct themselves. And on that basis, decision-making is going to be taken. Uh, then we are seeing the increased use of prediction uh, as tools, uh, AI-based predictions as tools, again, for decision-makers to uh, take decisions on issues such as to whether to neutralize someone, whether to kill someone in the battlefield, but also whether to detain someone in what is called administrative or preventive detention. And those systems have bias in them. Those systems have bias in them, and they make mistakes because the programmers that program them also have biases, and they have information lapses. So we know that they are not perfect, But the scientists tell us that through machine learning, over time, these systems could get better and better. And at some point in time, we are not there yet, of course, but at some point in time, they will actually make decisions which are less biased uh, and have fewer false positives uh, and maybe also fewer false, false negatives than uh, decisions that are undertaken by human beings. Of course, intelligence officers that currently are the... Uh, substitute for artificial intelligence, they also gather information and they also process and analyze information and re- make recommendations. And one could argue that they also have uh, a variety of biases. So we are, uh, and they we definitely are, also make mistakes. And they also have not machine learning, but they do learn from their, their mistakes. So we will be substituting what is an imperfect system of decision-making with another imperfect system of decision-making, which, however, could get over time better because of its greater capacity 
capacity to process large volumes of information in very uh, short periods of time. But this is, as I said, this is where we are headed. We're, we're still not there yet, although we are seeing more and more use of AI in and around the battlefield. Now, the, the, the next frontier, which we are now working on, uh, namely not in development, but actually in trying to assist developers identify what would be the legal, regulatory, policy, and ethical issues, is uh, the actual enhancement of humans through technology, namely using technology not just as a tool to assist humans in decision-making or even to replace humans uh, in decision-making and take them out of the loop, but actually to interact more intimately with humans by actually affecting the way humans themselves uh, perform, uh, think, and conduct. Physically and mentally. Physically and mentally. So in terms of uh, physically, human enhancement technologies are partly uh, based on computerized technology, but they're also based on other technologies such as pharmaceutical technology. Uh, and there are also even some mechanical uh, motor, motoric technologies that, uh, that could be either uh, implanted or being uh, uh, superimposed on, on the human body in order to allow humans to lift uh, uh, heavier weights. We could to say in a faster. sense, in a very uh, general sense, that a human inside a tank is an enhanced human because a tank can go through and pick up and destroy things that a human body cannot. Exactly. And I think there is a difference in this area between uh, wearing uh, an exoskeleton, which is uh, an external uh, an external apparatus that you actually, you in a way, wear and increases your performance, and taking uh, pills, uh, which actually make you sleepless. You do not need sleep anymore. Uh, and you can perhaps process uh, and you can actually undertake in quicker mental and physical processes. And then there is the issue, which we, of course, are mostly interested in since we are uh, dealing with cybersecurity. And this is the issue of brain-machine interface, where technology is already on the verge of actually interfering with mental processes through external stimulation that could be uh, undertaken by computers. This is already used for pharmaceutical reasons, for instance, to deal with some people who have lost motoric capacity and, uh, and people who are dealing with uh, memory-related uh, Alzheimer and other diseases. But we are seeing development also in this field, which is designed to uh, improve human capacity over and beyond existing standards. This has not been uh, put into operation, but it is envisioned that in the not-so-far future, we will see the ability to transmit data into the human brain, either directly or through some uh, brainwaves uh, simulating mechanism that would enable individuals to get access directly to data from a machine. And of course, this raises a multiplicity of uh, legal, ethical policy, regulatory issues that need to be addressed, not, not the least questions relating to cybersecurity in this specific context. <laughs> Interesting, like, are you allowed to hack a soldier? Are you allowed to hack an enemy soldier? And what damage are you allowed to do to the system and technology that is inseparable from the human? Right, of course. This, of course, uh, still sounds a little bit like science fiction, and it is to some extent science fiction. We've heard of hackers stopping um, um, an insulin pump or, uh, or a pacemaker. 
And if uh, soldiers are enhanced with these or, or similar gadgets, you can kill a person with hacking. Sure. And of course, since I started with saying that we are already in a situation where human decision making is already assisted by AI, and in some cases it is already substituted by AI, so far not on the battlefield, but in other more mundane fields of activity, there, of course, the risk of hacking is very real and, of course, could in itself lead to, to dramatic uh, consequences. So if the targeting coordinates for battlefield use are being hacked and they are being substituted with other targeting coordinates, then this, uh, I mean, this in itself could be a catastrophe. Now, of course, the more uh, this technology is embedded in the human being himself or herself, this, of course, uh, raises uh, another uh, set of concerns, not only about consequences that could occur, but also about our degree of autonomy as human beings. I mean, if we are subject to this sort of technological hack, then we lose our freedom in ways which we have not known of before. You can also make soldiers do things that they wouldn't do on their own and therefore remove uh, not only the autonomy, but the ability to make conscientious decisions in the war field. Right. Again, look, I mean, a lot of what we are seeing uh, is already uh, very close to that in the sense that our worldview and our motivations is already very highly affected of the digital environment in which we operate. And we have seen, uh, I mean, elections being manipulated by the fact that individuals are being brainwashed through technology. So the fact that we already, we are already susceptible to such risks Though indirectly, I mean, it's not someone actually controlling our brains directly, but it is controlling a lot of the data that enters our brain. And therefore, we are already subject to many of these risks in an indirect manner. Of course, once uh, such a technology becomes uh, available and put into use on, actually, on actual human beings, and the military, of course, is one area, but one could think of many other areas in which this would be applied, uh, then, uh, as I said, in terms of our freedoms, uh, as freedom as human beings is being changed or the notion of what is freedom, what is autonomy, what is free will is being changed in very uh, dramatic ways. And uh, from the army and the rights of enhanced humans, let's talk about the rights of uh, the digital rights of, of humans, which is something that we are experiencing now and is not theoretical at all. Right. So the third frontier that I'm working on in terms of my research interest at the center is the question of digital human rights or the way in which uh, offline human rights uh, actually apply in the, in the digital sphere. And here, I think uh, we are also witnessing a change that is based on the inside that uh, sometimes uh, the move from one environment to another environment is not just uh, a change in the modality in how rights actually operate, but actually uh, it's a transformative change, which actually makes us reevaluate how rights should operate. So I think in terms of our research, what we are uh, seeing that there is already a lot of interest, of course, in digital human rights. And we have a, 
already a host of um, resolutions uh, that uh, were taken by the United Nations that we've mentioned before, the General Assembly, the Human Rights Council, which do affirm, of course, something which is very obvious, and that is that offline human rights also apply online. Uh, and this is easy, but I think it is perhaps too easy because what we are seeing is that uh, in some cases, uh, rights that apply offline apply very differently online because the technology renders the stakes much higher. So, for instance, hate speech, which we have good reasons to regulate uh, offline, we may have extremely uh, good reasons to regulate online because of speed and scale and the ability to translate words into action. We've seen this in the crimes against the Rohingya, which could even amount to genocide. In Burma uh, last year, where hate speech that was propagated very quickly online immediately translated itself into wide massacres. So here one could make the claim that the intervention has to be uh, much speedier and much more aggressive than in the offline world. Uh, in the offline world, fake news is another area we are, we are seeing the same issue where something which could have been tolerated in the offline world, where we always had fake news, when you move it into an online echo chamber, which has its own unique uh, reality or unreality, has uh, very uh, different implications and requires us to reevaluate the market of ideas rational that has been used as justification for not interfering with freedom of expression. And surveillance is another area where the technology has actually rendered the powers of surveillance much more extreme than what we have seen in the offline world. Again, requiring a very different regulatory approach. But this is only the first uh, group of cluster of rights, which I think one could perhaps, with some adjustments, apply also in the online. But then you have other clusters of rights or interests which uh, traditional human rights do not capture at all. So, uh, for instance, the right to access the web, which traditionally has been understood as uh, stemming from freedom of expression, seeing that the web is a form of expression and a form of exchange of information. But uh, we believe that this actually doesn't, uh, doesn't capture the essence of the right, because if uh, being on the web is the key not only to your expression, but also to your social life, to your economic life, to your political life, it's really the equivalent of the right to have rights. So it's a much more, much more fundamental right than just having it being the a derivative. mere existence. Your mere online existence uh, and without an online existence, for many people, your offline existence is dramatically affected. So this needs to be actually reconceptualized as a standalone right. And there are many other rights like this, which we are seeing emerging, but we still do not have the vocabulary to understand them as standalone rights, such as the right to informational self-determination, namely your right to control the way you are represented online, the right to cybersecurity, which, is, uh, which actually makes the conditions for you to have an online life, the right to data portability, uh, and there are other examples which, uh, which underscore the need to create a new vocabulary. What makes this another, of course, makes it even more complicated that this is a, a field in which you have other actors. Uh, so the right holders is one thing, but then there is the question of who are the duty holders? 
traditionally in international law or even in domestic law, the, the state has been the principal duty holder. But this, again, doesn't work well in a cyber environment where states are quite marginal to determining many features of the online environment in protecting, promoting, uh, facilitating online access. Uh, and ensuring rights. Uh, the rights and the interests are very uh, hard to actually pinpoint to a specific territory. This is a decentralized and de-territorialized environment. So we have to think of other ways to actually new frameworks to uh, promote rights. And, and this is something which is probably one of the greatest challenges of our time. You're talking about how the um, cyberspace allows us to do things in scale, which might change the way we need to treat traditional human rights, does it really change the basis of the principles of, uh, of human rights? I mean, freedom of speech, is it different on the internet? Should it be treated differently, uh, essentially differently, than uh, freedom of speech off the internet? As in, do I have the right to... Um, express my opinions through bots and through fake users. This is my freedom of speech, but I'm not using my real identity. Or is it, uh, do I have a freedom of privacy? Can I say things without identifying myself, something that I wouldn't necessarily be able to do offline? Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, in terms of, uh, so you could say, well, freedom of expression is the same thing, yes. So the, that's, I think, the traditional approach, and you're simply uh, substituting one medium for, for another. Uh, but I agree with you that this uh, actually is missing the point. So over and beyond the issue of market of ideas, that some of the traditional rationals for freedom of expression other uh, uh, do not work as neatly as they do in uh, the online world as they do in the offline world. The question of whether this actually uh, new, well, not so new medium, uh, creates in itself some opportunities to express oneself, which are which did not exist before in the offline world, or was or were not so central to human existence. So, so the example that you gave about uh, using pseudonyms and actually using. Um, uh, disguised identities, I mean, for some online forms of interaction, this is very important. So there could be a question of whether these identities should have their own legal protections that could be derivative from the original individual that created them or could be independent of them in the way that we allow companies to have a different set of rights and obligations from the rights and obligations of those who have created them. And this is because we have deemed companies, corporations, to be an important actor in our economic and sometimes even social environment. This question, I think, is particularly sharpened when one is dealing with the online profiles of dead people, where individuals retain their online persona even after they are no longer alive. And then there is a question of whether these online persona should be regarded as right holders in themselves. So I would tend to say that the fact that we do have a different medium uh, in which expression is being uh, facilitated and imagined in different ways 
creates new sets of expectations and interests for individuals that should be reconceptualized as new understandings of human rights. There is, of course, uh, like in many other uh, areas of human existence, there is much path dependency because our imagination of the future is often hindered or, or, or shaped by our experience of the past. But, uh, but I think... Our metaphors of a, a folder and a superhighway and... Everything comes from the old world. Exactly. And certainly when one is thinking about uh, freedom of expression is also access to data, uh, here again, maybe the difference is even uh, more stark between the offline and the online world because of the sheer accessibility options that are being created. So I think it is very hard for us to even find the metaphor in the offline world to access to data that we have on the online environment It would be very hard to find the equivalent in the offline environment. Well, soon we're going to be able to connect the network into our brains directly. And I think we'll have a pretty good metaphor by then. Well, by then we will become part of the, of the highway. <laughs> And <laughs> hopefully uh, not roadkill on the highway. <laughs> do you see philosopher thinkers rethinking what human life is and how it should be? conducted and treated because of what we see in the uh, new media and the new world. I, I'm not a philosopher. You kind of have to be in this. Some in this. of my best friends are, but I'm not a philosopher. But yeah, of course, I mean, this raises a lot of existential questions about what it means to be a human being. And if the core of our existence is having this flow of memories and experiences Because, you know, we are changing every day, our cells change, and the only constant uh, element is really our memories of our experiences. And if this could now be uploaded or downloaded or stored and being uh, recast, then, of course, there, is, there are many deep questions as, as to what it means to, to actually be, in, uh, be a, a human being. And, uh, of course, this whole literature about uh, machines develop consciousness and, and how... Demanding rights. And, and demanding, well, demanding rights, of course, this is also another feature which we have not talked about. But, of course, you could think about machines also as having, at some point, um, rights. I think this, yes, this really uh, throws us to the edge of what, what our understanding is. Of, uh, of, uh, of humanity and of the justification that we have for uh, conferring rights on humans. Professor Yuval Shani, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Lex Kibernetica. I'm Ito Kainan. See you in cyberspace. This was Lex Kibernetica. Lex Kibernetica. More episodes are available at the Hebrew University Cybersecurity Research Center site at csrcl.huji.ac.il.